All right, let's be real. What has been the hardest thing about your pregnancy and postpartum journey? Is it the postpartum painful sex that nobody talks about? What are you supposed to do with that? Is it the fact that you might have torn during delivery and you have no idea how to heal now that you're in postpartum? Welcome to the Onus Podcast, where we bring on mothers, parents, and pregnant postpartum individuals to talk about their journey and their experiences to give that knowledge back to people that need it. And we are also attached to the theonuscollaborative.com, which is a free online educational directory where we help moms and parents connect to maternity care providers in their local area. We are here to give the power back to you guys so you have a choice in your journey. We'll have space for midwives, doulas, pelvic floor PTs, massage therapist. And as we continue expanding, we hope that we can support you. All right. We hope you enjoy this podcast. Welcome back to the Onus Podcast. My name is Erin, and today we have an exciting episode with Erin, <laughs> who we are talking about the IVF experience that she has had. Her and her wife, Kate, have been going through years of IUI and IVF, and today we're going to be going into detail about that experience, and we also want to highlight that there will be discussion of miscarriage as well. So if that is something that is troubling for you at the moment, we recommend not listening to this episode. And yeah, we hope you all enjoy. Michigan uh, originally grew up there and then about six years ago moved to Massachusetts um, with my wife Um, we weren't married at the time but we ended up getting married here in Massachusetts and that's um, I actually work as a sign language interpreter and that's how I met her kind of when I was learning I was in a program back in Michigan um, an interpreter training program and kind of met her through those circles, um, she was directing a nonprofit agency in Michigan at the time, and um, she's deaf, so that's kind of how we met. And then we moved out here in Massachusetts, um, and yeah, we got married here. We wanted to start a family, and we went straight to a fertility clinic. And I forgot what else you asked. Sorry. Well, okay. So you went to a fertility clinic, and so is Kate also originally from Michigan? She was living in Michigan at that time, but she grew up in California. Oh, okay. So this is like... She grew up in California, lived in South Dakota for a little while, and then um, moved to Michigan. And what brought you guys to Massachusetts? Yeah, so she um, got a new job, and that's why we moved. Yeah. Yeah. Her work. Yeah, (laughs) which is usually the reason. (laughs) And so you decided that you both wanted to start a family and this has led you to um, a journey of trying to start a family. So if you want to start from the beginning with that and how that's come about. Sure. Yeah. Um, uh, so like I said, we, we just went straight to a fertility clinic. Like um, we knew of one other couple who was two women, um, like a female, female couple who are married and they had worked with this clinic Um So we just went straight to that clinic, same doctor. And we started with me doing the IUIs um, where we have our own donor. So actually backing up. So before we we jumped into that, we didn't do that right away. There was a whole long process leading up to that. So we had a consult back in August of 2016. That was our first consultation appointment. We talked about what it might look like to use a anonymous donor from a sperm bank versus known. Um, the clinic seemed to be kind of trying to steer us in the direction of using an anonymous donor. Um, but we, we kind of felt like we wanted a person that could be known to the child and um, like someone that we knew that we might be able to like see every now and then that the child could have access to and Um, you know, it was just kind of important for us. We didn't know the idea of using an anonymous donor. Many people do. Um, It just didn't necessarily feel like our first choice. So we have a known donor um, who's a friend and uh, we got him on board. It took a little while before he could kind of do like travel to wherever he needed to do. So 
what we needed was, um, I think we had him, I don't remember the exact word, but we had him first, um, Kate and myself had to see the fertility clinics counselor. Uh, I think they require that anytime someone is using third party reproductive services. So like an egg donor or a sperm donor or someone outside. And we just talked a little bit about what that might look like, what it might entail, how like it might lead to different feelings coming up using a party outside of the relationship. Um, so we did that. And then our donor who is married and they have two children. So the donor and his wife needed to have counseling. And we, they did that in their state. They live in a different state. So I had to find a counselor. I, I mean, so our clinic helped. They made a recommendation of a counselor and they wanted someone who specialized in third-party reproduction. So, but that counselor, we were gonna pay for that out of pocket and it was kind of a little bit cost prohibitive. So um, in addition, the donor and his wife are deaf. So they, the appointment would have needed um, ASL interpreter at the appointment. And um, a lot of people are not very knowledgeable about that. and. Um, the fact that that is an ADA required accommodation, meaning that the provider should cover the cost of that and provide that. Um, that cost should not necessarily be put onto the um, patient or client. Yeah. But many of these counselors are just independent contractors and they don't maybe necessarily have the means to do that. So mm -hmm. I, I knew that it's kind of in the gray area. So I, I contacted several and the first three or four that I contacted all told me that I needed to bring my own interpreter, that they weren't going to cover that. Um, so that was adding like an emotional layer to the demands of the whole thing. And then I finally find, found a counselor who um, was willing to cover the cost and her rates were less cost prohibitive. So we found her, they did counseling. We had to hire a, an attorney to draft up a legal contract, which we all did via, via email. Wow. Then the donor had to come out here to Massachusetts and give, like, make the, make the deposit, give his sample, I guess you could say. And um, that sample needed to be quarantined. They quarantine either three or six months, I guess it depends. So, and I think that goes back to, um, the origins of sperm banks where I think they were kind of popping up at a time when maybe HIV and AIDS were a big concern. So they continue the practice of quarantining the sample, meaning they just hold on to it and wait because um, I think I think what they do is they they do a blood test blood test on the donor when he makes the deposit and then they do it again after the quarantine period to see like if anything has cropped up I guess in that time frame okay. um, we didn't expect anything to so we waited the three months plus an additional month for them to like release and go through the paperwork and the process of releasing the sperm to our doctor and um, that process all of that took about a year um, and just it was a lot of waiting so when we finally heard from the cryobank that the um, sperm was, uh, I guess, released or whatever, they sent us a letter. They sent the same letter to our doctor, basically saying that our donor doesn't meet the criteria for uh, anonymous donor, whatever, which we knew because he's deaf. Um, most sperm banks will not accept deaf donors um, just because it's considered a defect that they don't want in their donor population, I guess. So, yeah. So we knew that he wasn't going to be an anonymous donor. That was never the plan. We didn't, you know, he wasn't trying to be a donor for anyone. He was just going to be a donor for us. Um, so I was fine with that. You know, they said, well, he doesn't meet this criteria, but whatever, whatever. So because of that though, then I called my clinic because I hadn't heard anything. Um, in this process of a, a year or so, my doctor had gotten a new nurse. So new nurse also doesn't know anything about this specific case. She was great. I loved her, but um, basically she said, well, because the, the cryobank um, rejected him, then your, um, your doctor has to bring this to the committee to see if we can proceed with him. And that was the first time I ever thought, 
there might be a problem with using this donor. He, we had been open with our doctor from the get-go that he's deaf. Um, that was no secret. But now, so I, I called and spoke to the doctor and she was basically saying that their clinic has a policy that they don't, if they have an embryo that has a known physical disability or a known disability, like um, Down syndrome or whatever, where there's missing chromosome, they won't implant those embryos. Um, and I think many clinics are the same. They won't proceed with embryos that have in, an incorrect number of chromosomes or that have like that known type of disability that way. Um, so I, I don't know. That was a bit, that was a huge, um, real big hurdle and devastation for me. I felt like, are we in the right place? Mm. Does she understand um, our situation? Because I tried asking her things like, well, who is this committee? Mm. Are you going to be there? Are you going to kind of tell them that we're, we're better equipped than the average couple to deal with having a deaf child? Like if, yeah. if you have two other people who just happen to have a deaf child, they don't know anything, but we're already in the community. We use ASL. We, you know, we, yeah we sign, we know we have resources. And her thing was, you know, it's, it's not about your ability to parent a deaf child. It's more, does this case go against our policy of not using an embryo with a known physical disability? But the, the thing was our embryos didn't have necessarily a known disability um, that was identified. It was just potential. So, um, so that took about a month. I had to wait for a month for them to meet. And then they came back saying that um, they were fine using the donor under the condition that we meet with a genetic counselor and talk about options, um, I guess, as far as, you know, inheritance, genetic, whatnot, what's the possibility that we could have a deaf child. And um, so we did that. And then when when that was finally done, I thought we were finally cleared to try um, our first IUI. And then while they came back with, we needed a, another test, insurance was going to require another test. So that means a whole other month, which at this point, you know, we're already over a year in and we just want a child. Um, so we do the test. And then the next month was December of 2017 by this point. And I wasn't going to be able to do anything that month because of Christmas plans. So uh, I was like, okay, January 2018 is where it's at. So 2018, we started IUIs. We did six in a row. Actually, we did four. I think we did four that were all unsuccessful. And after the fourth one or so, we had a, an appointment with our doctor. And she basically reiterated, which I had forgotten because there's so much information that I had to do six because basically when you're trying to conceive, I think the way, at least in my insurance here in Massachusetts sees it um, is if you're over, if you're under the age of 35, you have to be trying to conceive for at least 12 months with no success to be, to be considered infertile or get a diagnosis of infertility and then move on to a fertility clinic for them to cover it. And I, if you're over age 35, that six months of trying. And I was over age 35 at the time. So that was my six months of trying was doing six months in a row of inseminations that didn't work. And I found out after the fourth one that my doctor was like, oh yeah, they're not very successful. Um, at this point we were just, you know, I, I guess we had to do two more um, just to check off the boxes for insurance. And, um, then we, you know, that wasn't successful. We moved on to um, doing our first round of IVF. Um, I, I, I would say that was pretty overwhelming just because when you, when you do IVF, you have all these different medications that you need and it comes in this huge box and some of them are, need to be refrigerated. So they come with cold packs and just lots of boxes of needles and uh, medications and other things. And some of them require mixing from the, they have like a saline liquid that you put in the powder and the other vials. So it's a little bit overwhelming. I did fine with it. Um, I think the, the very first shot took me a little bit of courage to, to muster up. Um, 
I know some people have their partners give them their injections. I just felt like I needed to do it myself. Um, Can I ask a question? Yeah, sure. Okay, so with IUI, do you have to take any medications for that? Some people do. Um, I think we just did, we didn't, we didn't do any. Um, and I really don't know why actually. Yeah. I think that some of the medications, there was, well, there was no indication that I needed like oral medications to stimulate anything because I think my, my like um, hormone levels were measuring within normal ranges, like nothing was really low, um, nothing indicated that I might need help um, conceiving. I just needed access to it. So um, I just needed, what I thought, I just needed access to sperm and then we conceive. Um, I think that some people do use either oral medications and maybe an injectable um, trigger shot, which is basically, I think it helps kind of when you're ovulating, I think it just helps things move along. I'm not really sure how it works in IUI, to be honest, because I didn't use any medications for that. Yeah. I know that some people do, but we just didn't. Yeah. I think I, I actually think later when we talked with our doctor about the possibility of Kate doing an IUI and they did bring up um, a couple different options for maybe some medications or like injectable medications. And I was like, why didn't we talk about that with me? And they were like, oh, you back in like the first appointment, you were like, mm, I don't want any injections. So I was like, oh, right. I remember yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, I kind of, it sounds like something I would say. <laughs> okay. I mean, Although now, you know, like I'm about to go into a round of IVF anyway. So I, I think I had been hoping to avoid injections, but. Yeah. And, no. so, <laughs> and so with IUI, cause I feel like I'm not very knowledgeable. I know my aunt did this. Is that where they just inject the sperm directly into your cervix and when, around the time that you're ovulating? Yeah, so they did track my ovulation. Like I was going in in the morning for monitoring and they were looking to, um, see when certain hormones surged and they were tracking my ovulation that way. So then I think once I ovulated, they would have me come in at a very specific day. Like it would be like, we're still monitoring. And then they would call and be like, okay, tomorrow's your day, you know, come on in. And um, they had, yeah, like a, a pretty long catheter that they would just put into the, directly into the uterus. And um, yeah, so they have what they call washed, the sperm is washed, which means that this, like if you just have semen, it has other fluids in there and other particles um, besides just sperm. Mm -hmm. So washed is where they basically kind of get rid of all of the extra stuff because that stuff, you don't want to put it directly into the uterus. Otherwise it causes a lot of cramping. The uterus will, you know, it, you just want sperm in there, I think. Mm -hmm. um, so they kind of, wash it so to speak they just I guess extract the sperm somehow mm -hmm. and um yeah so they just kind of inject that through this long thin catheter directly into the uterus um is that painful it's not it's not any more painful than a typical pelvic exam I mean to, to me usually the most painful thing is the speculum mm. um yeah and I had to, I feel like I had to ask every time for a smaller or thinner speculum. And it was always, you know, met with, well, we'll see, we'll try, you know, sometimes it's hard to get to see the cervix with a small speculum, which I'm like, okay, but can we just try anyway? Because a regular size one always really hurts. It's like very pinchy and, um, so yeah, that's, I think to me, that's, that's the biggest thing. Um, sometimes anytime you put anything directly into the uterus, it cramps up. So it, it doesn't, I mean, it wasn't horrible. I would say it kind of felt like period, like cramping and it goes away. I might usually take <clears throat> a couple ibuprofen or Tylenol before, mm. but yeah, it doesn't last. It goes away pretty quickly, but it just, I would feel cramping when they would inject it in. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the other questions I wanted to ask you is how did that make you feel that they said um, any embryos with any type of birth defect they don't like to use and 
I don't know. I feel like that personally would have frustrated me. It really did. Um, I mean, I, we don't consider deafness to be a defect or a disability. Um, I mean, in, in our house and in our community and I, I grappled with that anyway, like even deafness aside, even if there was some other type of physical disability, I don't like the idea of just discarding them mm. on that fact. You know, if it could, like if it, if it, if it still has a chance at life, then, you know, I, if those are the babies that we're meant to have, but I think that, so I did grapple with it at that point. I think that the farther I got into the journey, that kind of um, took on a different priority or a different, I had a slightly different view on it after my first miscarriage. Um, but yeah, at the time I think I grappled with like, I don't like the idea of just discarding them. And also, you know, you obviously don't understand where we're coming from, but I know that the medical field typically views deafness as a disability and yeah. whatnot. And I just, I was, I was really frustrated. I was really mad with that because I thought if, if he were my husband, like if this were my husband, this would not even be an issue. You know, like if I was with a deaf man and, you know, we were trying to make a baby together, they wouldn't make us go to genetic counseling. I doubt. I mean, I think there are other deaf um, couples who have gone through IVF and I doubt that they've had the same experience. Mm. Um, so it just made me, it really frustrated me um, to the point that we even sought a second opinion with another doctor um, to kind of get her take and see if, are we really in the right place? I really want to be with someone who's going to understand us. Yeah, that's actually such a good point. If it would have been a man, they would have never even questioned it. Yeah. And do you feel like this fertility specialist that you were working with was very respectful of, of you having a wife and not a husband, like being a same-sex couple? I think so. Yeah. I think in her view, this was not related. Like, I think in her view, this is just like, well, you know, the partners or whatever the committee has, the clinic has some policy and I just need to make sure that we're not going against the policy. So I think to her, it wasn't related. So in general, I felt no lack of respect from her. Um, it's funny though, the doctor that we went to for the second opinion, I mean, it wasn't, I didn't think of it as a, like a second opinion on like treatment. It was more just, I want to go to, because we hadn't even done any treatment at this point. We hadn't done any IUIs. Um, we hadn't done anything. We just had a donor and we'd done maybe some initial testing mm. and we went to a second doctor and actually I felt a lot more disempowerment from her. Mm. Um, so I was like, okay, that's a dead end. So I guess we'll see. I'll stay with this clinic, you know, it was, it was a rough day seeing the other doctor. Yeah. 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 That's frustrating. Um, and I guess I also didn't realize how long just getting to the point of actually getting the procedure done. Cause so at this point to get to six rounds of it, you were what at two years from start to end. It was almost two years. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't realize that either. And I think that initially they did try, I think that they did say it might take longer, but I think in the initial consult, there was so much information that I didn't retain at all. I tried writing things down and I think later I found my notes because I was like, why didn't I know that it was going to be six months of IUIs? And I found notes later where I had written down six months minimum or whatever. And I was just like, okay, I guess they did say this, but I didn't absorb it. Um, because it is, there's, it is very confusing. It's like a whole other world to navigate and so many different options and different things that are required. And now that I'm in it, I'm like, oh, well, that makes sense. But yeah, yeah at the time I didn't know. And it was, it was a long time. I didn't really realize that if you're using, I think for couples who might be using an anonymous sperm or anonymous donor, it's, it's faster. You pay like per vial, there's like a cost per vial, you can buy X number of vials of sperm, I think. And 
Um, so in our case, we weren't paying for bio, we had to pay the lab for any FDA required testing that they had to do on the sperm. Um, and for, so I think that just the testing that they did on the sperm was somewhere in the $3,000 range. So I think we paid a little over 3000 for them just to do the testing and then we paid for them to store it. Um, yeah, so it's more, it's a little bit more expensive depending, but if you're using an, an anonymous sperm donor, if you buy a couple of vials and you can conceive right away, it could be less expensive, but if it's taking you longer then you're buying more vials and then more vials. So yeah. plus we just wanted a known donor. Um, but yeah, it did take a lot longer than we thought, um, just based on everyone's schedule of availability and timelines, so. Um, because you did all six rounds and none were successful, did your doctor ever have an opinion on why they weren't being successful and why, you, why they, did they suggest IVF? Or did you want to do IVF? Yeah, uh, she didn't have anything to say about why they weren't successful. Um, I think she just said they're not, they may not be that successful. Um, and I think, I wonder if some of it had to do with my age, like at this point I was still feeling fine. You know, like a lot of people talk about, oh, after 35, you're considered like a geriatric yeah. uh, patient in the world of trying to conceive. And at this point, I didn't quite feel like that, mm. but um, I, I believe she suggested IVF. Okay. Yeah. Um, is we could try. And I was ready to, to move on to that because um, I just wanted to do whatever might give us quick success mm. um, the fastest because, yeah. yeah. You, just wanted yeah. To, you just want to start a family. That's it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No. So this is almost two years at that point. And we just wanted a family. and. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so this led you into IVF. Are you still with the same doctor at this point? I'm not. No, we did uh, our first round of IVF with her. I think I got um, 10 eggs that fertilized. And um, so what happens is when they retrieve the eggs, they try and do them the same or fertilize them the same day. And then they'll call you the next day with the report, like the fertilization report, how many fertilized, how many were mature. So IVF involves using different medications to stimulate your eggs or basically follicles to grow. So you have these follicles and that's what the egg grows inside. So the follicles are growing. Not every follicle will have an egg or a mature egg in it, um, but they, that's what they measure when you go in frequently in the morning for monitoring is they're doing um, a vaginal ultrasound and like looking at the follicles as they're growing, they're measuring them. And they also do blood work looking, you know, they're looking at different hormones. And once the follicles get to a certain size, I want to say it's between 18 to 20, 21 millimeters. That's kind of optimal. So, um, you're stimulating and as you're going, as you're getting closer to ovulation, then they add, they usually add in a third or second or whatever, another medication injectable to prevent ovulation. So, um, because they don't want you to ovulate yet, they're still growing, they're still growing more or like follicles are growing. They're trying to grow them all evenly and they just, they don't want you to ovulate yet until they're actually ready to collect that number of the high number of um, eggs. So you're taking another medication to prevent ovulation and it just keeps growing. And so your ovaries get quite big um, with all the different follicles and eggs growing in there. And <clears throat> so it does, it gets pretty uncomfortable physically. Um, and then when they, when they decide that you're ready for the retrieval, um, they'll tell you to do the trigger shot. And the trigger shot is what basically triggers, I think, ovulation. So, you know, they were saying, hold on, hold on. And then they trigger and you go in, at, you do the shot at a specific time. They tell you 
what time to do the shot and then they'll tell you what time to report for the egg retrieval so that they it's usually about 36 hours after okay. after you do the shot um go in um you know it's day surgery anesthesia they go in um, vaginally and I think they aspirate the follicles. So they have, they basically go through the vaginal wall, I think, and they try and um, get, pull out as many eggs as they can from as many follicles as they can. Yeah. And um, not all the eggs will be mature. So they typically will give you the report the next day on like how many were mature, how many fertilized, um, some clinics will give daily updates. Mine didn't. So I would wait until day five. On day five, it should become a blastocyst because it's already divided into so many cells um, and grown to the point where um, there are lots of different cells now, um, more than you can count. And it's starting to divide in itself into an inner cell mass, which will become the baby and the um, there's another area, I forget what it's called, that will become maybe more of the placenta. And um, it's within the within that time range where it will start hatching. So there's a like membrane around it. And then the, the I guess, fertilized egg will start hatching out of that membrane and get ready to implant into the uterus. Um, so my first round of IVF, I think I had 10 eggs fertilized. Only two of them made it to the blastocyst day five stage. Um, we transferred one, which we, we couldn't do the same month because they told me I was at risk of um, OHSS, which is ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. Um, basically, when you're ovaries are producing hormones hormones, and extra fluid, what can happen is that they just keep producing and they kind of go haywire almost, they're overstimulated. So they produce excess fluid in your abdomen and you can have maybe a mild, moderate or severe case. Um, so because I was at risk of that, because my estrogen level was so high, I think it measured in like the three, 3,000 something. It was just, it was really high. Um, so they decided that they were not going to do a fresh transfer, which means the same cycle. So fresh would be they take the eggs out, fertilize them, and then either three or five days later, you come back and they transfer them back in, they put them in. Um, so in the same month, same cycle. Um, for me, I had to do frozen, which means they froze those two. And then the next month I was able to get ready for a transfer, which involves other types of medications because you're not um, you're not conceiving naturally. Um, there are certain hormones that your body is missing out on when conception happens naturally in the body. So they su uh, support that with like estrogen and progesterone uh, medications to try help your body get ready and um, help the embryo implant in the uterus. And I did that the following month. The first transfer was successful. It stuck, it worked. We went, we were pregnant. We had an ultrasound at seven or eight weeks and everything was perfect. Like heartbeat was right on track, measurement and everything. And then I stopped the medications at week 10, um, which is typical. You take the medications to support growth until about week 10 and then you stop them. And um, when I did, it was about four or five days later that I miscarried at home. Um, so that was completely unexpected. Um, it was a huge shock. Um, and had to have um, surgery, basically DNC, um, to get all of the tissue that was still retained out. Um, and then I think I had to wait three months before I could try again. They basically told me to wait that long, even though an OB will tell you there's no restriction, like you can try the next month. There's nothing that could prevent you from doing that. Um, fertility specialists will, I think probably, they wanted me to wait like three months. Um, some of them will continue to monitor your blood and track the pregnancy hormone or HCG back down to zero. So because you have this hormone, like 
in your system now of pregnancy, they wait for it to get all the way back down to zero before they let you try again. Um, in my case, I just had to wait three months. We had our second embryo and um, we tried that in the spring of 2019 and it didn't take, um, it was, yeah, so that was round one. <laughs> this sounds like a massive emotional toll. I was wondering how was, well, so first question, how was your body feeling on the different types of medications? Did you notice any difference? Yeah, um, very bloated. Um, and then as I got towards the end of the stimulation cycle, um, I started to get like kind of slightly nauseous fairly easily. Um, it was hard to eat. Like I just felt like my stomach was smaller, which it probably was because everything is growing, like your ovaries are getting really big. So they push up on your other organs. Um, mostly that, just some nausea, but I think that the dosage or the amount that I was taking was pretty high for me um, because in subsequent rounds, I didn't feel quite as bad and I was taking lower dosages. Um, yeah. And um, how did you cope with going through a miscarriage? Because I imagine that would have been very difficult. It was so hard. Um, I was sad for a while. And I, so at this point, it's been, you know, two, two and a half years that we were ready to have a family now. And I thought, you know, there are so many people that I saw get pregnant in the time that I've been waiting and trying so many people. And I thought, you know, okay, it's finally our turn. And then we miscarried and it was like, oh, I thought it was my turn. I thought it was gonna happen for us. And it was December of 2018, um, pretty close to Christmas. So towards the end of December, we had made, um, like photo Christmas cards, two versions. We made one for like generic um, friends or whatnot. And then we made a, another smaller batch for like our families that had one picture of us like holding the little ultrasound from like week seven or eight. And we had just gotten those in. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> it was hard to have just gotten those, those, they just came in the mail and we miscarried and I was just at the point, I was nervous the whole time. Like I had a hard time believing. I mean, I believed that was true, but I was just like, okay. I think that I had gotten so used to just the fight itself that I didn't feel like, okay, we're, we're out of the woods now. We can relax and we're pregnant. Um, There's just something the whole time that I was like worried about miscarrying. And I kept trying to put it out of my mind. Like, like I'm just worrying unnecessarily. Like, why am I feeling like this? But I do wonder if there is some type of intuition going on um, that I had this feeling that this one wasn't going to stick around. Um, and I, it was good that it happened at home. Um, I was glad for that, but yeah, I, it was, I didn't know what to do. Like I kind of felt like, I think a lot of doctors will say that it's like having a heavy period um, which I would say it's, it's not like having a heavy period yeah. for me. If, it, I mean, this was the heaviest like period I'd ever had. Um, yeah. there was a lot like people experience miscarriage in different ways. For me, that first one came pretty quickly. Like there was a lot of bleeding and it came pretty quickly all at once. And, um, I didn't know what to do with, like, I felt like I couldn't leave the bathroom and I was just like stuck in there. And I didn't, I mean, this, uh, I don't know, this is going to sound bad, but I was like, I don't know what to do with it. Like, mm. I don't want to flush. Like, I can't flush. Like, this is, yeah. what do you, so I kind of, I was, I basically, what I don't know if this sounds bad, but I basically scooped it out. Mm. and kept it and just did like a little home burial in that backyard and I have like a little rock yeah. thing to kind of commemorate that and that might sound weird I don't know if you want to edit that out it's totally up to you but I was like 
I can't, I don't, either way, either way, it's just not good options. So. Yeah. No, I, I have, um, actually I've had a few people on the podcast and even friends who've miscarried and they say when it drops into the toilet, that's when you have to figure out what do you want to do? Cause most of them say they don't want to flush and the mm -hmm. ones that actually have a house actually do a burial as well. Yeah. You're not the only one. Yeah. People do that. And I, I'm going to keep it in if that's okay. Yeah. That's, that's fine with me. I just, um, you, you never hear about those things, you know, and when you think miscarriage, I think that a lot of people who have never had any experience with it, um, think of it just kind of in those simple terms, like, um, you have a heavy period, you lose the baby. And yeah, I didn't, my, my, I have had two and my second one was so different. Um, and it's that one, like going through that second one where it was so different, where it didn't happen on its own and I needed medication to try and help it out. Um, that I think people don't realize that I was like in the process of miscarrying for several weeks, yeah. several weeks where, you know, I had gone in for my first ultrasound at like six weeks, the doctor was concerned that she couldn't really find anything, but it was still early. So she wanted me to come back the following week, which I did. Um, she still didn't see anything else, but she's like, you know, I just want you to get another ultrasound at a, a, another place where they have slightly stronger equipment. Um, maybe they can see something that I can't. So at this point I was like, I don't, I don't think there's a baby, but I'll just go do the other ultrasound. Um, and I did, and there was, they couldn't see anything. So they recommended that I take misoprostol. So it's a, I guess you can take it orally, but I had to take it vaginally. There are like little tabs or medicine that you take vaginally, you put them up as high as you can and um, they induce strong cramping and bleeding. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, this was already two or three weeks since my first ultrasound when I had a feeling that it wasn't gonna be successful. And then I took the misoprostol and I did have a very intense night. They suggest doing it at night, which I don't, they, their thinking is that you'll sleep through the worst of it. I could not sleep through that. It was very intense cramping and it was very like, to the, to the point where I was like, I was like trying to rock my hips and shift and I was like moaning and just thinking like, I don't know, I'm not, I, how can I ever have a baby? Like I could never, this is so hard. How could I ever survive labor? Like, I don't know if I can do this. I'm just not strong enough. And um, so I did that. And then they had me come back in for an ultrasound to make sure that everything came out okay, which it didn't. So they wanted me to take a second dose of four more tablets another night. Yeah. Um, I was scared. I really didn't want to go through that again, but I um, didn't actually have intense cramping or bleeding the second time. So nothing came out. So they said, try it a third time, third dose of misoprostol. I didn't have cramping or bleeding again. So because of that, then they recommended another DNC, my second DNC. Yeah, so I wasn't miscarrying for almost a month, um, just going through the process of trying to end it. Um, and that was, that was hard, yeah. That would have been extremely difficult. And like you said, nobody talks about that. I had no idea. And I'm so no, sorry. A lot of people don't know that miscarriage can be like an ongoing, like, it's like a train to hell that just keeps going on. <laughs> yeah. um, but it eventually did end um, with the surgery, which was, you know, again, day surgery, anesthesia. Yeah. So I had had one, two, three three egg retrievals and two DNCs at that point. So that was my fifth uh, surgical procedure just to try and conceive. Yeah. yeah. But I did, I did switch clinics after my second round of IVF. Um, we had gotten 
four embryos make it to the blastocyst stage. And then we sent those out. We decided to send them out for genetic testing. They take a biopsy of the embryo and they're basically looking to see if it's chromosomally has like 23 pairs, like you're supposed to have the right number. And um, my doctor had basically said, you know, quality and quality declines with age, the miscarriage probably it could have been related to like, it might have just been genetically abnormal. You know, maybe it was not, um, you know, it didn't have the right number of chromosomes or whatever the case may be and yeah. how it declines with age. And the lab noted that your eggs were dark. She couldn't tell me what that meant. Just an observation. Yeah, just an observation from the lab. So we sent it out. All four of them came back abnormal. So we had nothing to use after round two. Yeah, we had two girls and two boys, but they were all chromosomally abnormal. So they wouldn't, they don't implant any of them. And is that um, which normal with IVF? Sorry. Yeah, no, I don't, um, I don't know if the process of IVF causes that. Okay. I think their best explanation for me was just that it could be due to age. I mean, I was already 37, 38 by that point, And the quality just tends to decline. Like eggs just when, I don't know, when the sperm and egg meet, I think that the DNA doesn't always replicate the correct way and just, I don't know what happens, but um, that was the only explanation. Um, and so at that point, the, she was just recommending like, well, the protocol that we did worked for you. You know, we could try again. Sometimes we just don't, we didn't get the right egg. Maybe we'll just, we can try again and try and get the right egg. Mm -hmm. um, but I felt like I wanted to search elsewhere just to see if someone was more willing to try other things in the protocol, um, different, maybe adding in different treatments or different types of medications. Mm -hmm. So that's why we switched clinics. Um, and we did my third round there, the transfer that led to my second miscarriage. And I recently completed a fourth round, uh, fourth egg retrieval. Um, which were, we had no embryos or no fertilized eggs make it to the blastocyst stage um, after day five. So we're back to step square one. Um, Kate had done her first egg retrieval. Um, we started looking at, at Kate trying it. Yeah. I had a, so she offered before and I had a hard time with that because I thought that for her to try would have meant that she might've had to do six IUIs as well. And I was like, what if you get pregnant? I want to be pregnant. I want to be the one. Yeah. <laughs> and she didn't, she didn't mind as much. Like she was more, she was willing to do it if, if needed, but she never really like wished for that. Uh -huh. um, whereas I did, and I really wanted that experience. So I was like, no. And then she ended up having a hysterectomy anyway, because she had uh, several fibroids that just grew like all of a sudden, like really fast and really huge. Like you could feel them from the outside. So, and she wanted one anyway, she always had really heavy periods and she just um, wanted to get rid of it. So she had a hysterectomy. So I would be carrying regardless, uh, you know, if we have any successful embryos from her and she did her first egg retrieval back in, I think, August and um, had two blastocysts, both of which were abnormal. So we didn't get anything from that round. I did my fourth. We didn't get anything. Um, she'll probably try a second retrieval, see if we can get anything from that. Yeah. Wow. This sounds like a long journey. So how many years are you at now from the very, very beginning of IUI? Uh, four years. Wow. Yeah. And no one, yeah. no one prepares you for that. Yeah. And actually two years from the beginning of IUI, but four years from the first consult where we wanted to start. And I, the, the question to me, like, or the idea of how long people have been trying to me is very different mm -hmm. than maybe like a straight couple, because when they want to start trying, they just start trying right away for free and in their home. Yeah. So uh, we had to arrange and plan and set up all these things for, in order to start trying that took over a year. Um, so 
I still feel like we've been trying for four years because yeah. we would have started trying if we were a straight couple. Um, we were ready at that point, and I'm 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 still ready. We're still trying, so we're still hopeful that it'll work out. But yeah, it's been a long, crazy road. Yeah, and thank you for sharing your story. Do you, um, how are you feeling at this point? Are you still feeling pretty optimistic about everything or is this taking a pretty big emotional toll? I am not feeling that optimistic. Um, I hope that we're, it's crazy because I hope that we're not out of the game, but I'm so tired of being in this game. Like I'm so, I'm so tired of trying to muster up the energy to try again. And I didn't think that I could do it again after the first one. And the miscarriage was just so devastating. The first miscarriage, I was like, I just don't know how much more I have to give this. Yeah. Um, but ultimately it's something that I really want. Like I've always felt like I'm meant to be a mom. And I know that there are various ways to do that and different journeys and paths to become parents. But um, for me, I just really wanted the experience of being pregnant. And I didn't, you know, some people feel called to adoption or whatnot. And I... I'm not really that out, but it's not my first choice. It's just not something that I necessarily feel called to. I more feel like I really want to be pregnant and have that experience. So we're trying that. Um, I, yeah, I'm having a hard time keeping hope alive for that. Um, just because I feel like we're getting towards the end of what we can do. I mean, we added in a couple new things for this last protocol that didn't really seem to help at all. So um, I don't know if it's just age. It just, I, yeah, it's hard to, it's hard to tell. It feels a little unfair because, you know, people will say, oh, plenty of women in their forties have babies. And I just, I just turned 40. So, you know, I'm hearing about all of these women that can still conceive when they're 40. Like, where are these women? That's not my experience. I, you know, I started before I was 40 and have struggled and yeah. that was completely unexpected and it just seems to be the quality. And I don't know if that there's much, I haven't been told that there's much that I can do to improve that. Um, so right now I'm looking into other, like any supplements, acupuncture, anything that I could do that might possibly make a difference. Yeah. 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 Well, I'm sorry that you've had this long journey to start a family and I do hope that everything comes out well, especially when it sounds like you have a supportive doctor and a supportive partner, which really, really yeah. helps. Yeah. Very supportive. I think that's so important is to have a provider who, or a team who you feel is really on your side, like in your corner. Yeah. Um, this doctor that I switched to, I don't know if, I don't know if if we'll have success because it seems like my eggs are just not great and mm. hopefully we'll get something from Kate. But yeah, I, I feel like this doctor is more, um, you know, in, in my corner, so to speak. Like I think the first doctor was just like, we can try again and mm. we'll see. And you know, just kind of willing to give up, but I, don't necessarily feel like that with this doctor, um, which I'm really glad about because that's so important to have someone who's going to give you hope when you have none and, you know, hold hope for you still. And, um, and we'll see what, what happens from here. Yeah. yeah. Fingers crossed. And yeah. I wanted to ask you, what advice do you have for any other same-sex couples looking to go through IVF? What would your advice be? Um, so my advice would be to, I guess, really research options. Um, like I know there are some people who do try like at home insemination. Um, that's not something I knew anything about or even looked into or knew was a thing, mm. um, at all, because I didn't know how to get sperm, especially from a known donor that was lived in a different state and was married. It just felt like a little bit weird to me to mm -hmm. get it directly. So just research options as far as like what's out there, what's available and um, be, you know, be your own advocate as much as you can be. Um, mm -hmm. 
if something doesn't feel right from you know any of your medical providers or team, don't be afraid to look for a second opinion, which I think can go for anyone too, just that you need to find people that you feel are there for you really and yeah. really working with you um, and not dealing with the like anything that can be disempowering you know if, if people are if you feel that they're not understanding of you or your relationship or situation then um, don't be afraid to question that or, or seek other providers and yeah. I think all that's really, really important, especially finding a provider that, like you said, this provider that you're working with now is more in your corner. I think mm -hmm. that's super important because sure, you can find an IVF specialist and there's so many different ranges, but finding the one that actually supports you and respects you, listens to you is so, so important. Yeah, it was. And so because we transferred, we transferred to this doctor with already a known donor um, and our doctor was like, well, if someone were to start from the beginning with me, I just like to meet the donor and make sure, you know, I just kind of want to have a talk with them. And so she wanted to have a talk with our donor mm. and she did. And I think we were worried because of the first clinic and how they made us wait. And they were like, well, we may not be able to use him. And yeah, this, so we were, we were worried, but, um, our new doctor came back with like, Oh, I had a chat with your donor and he was great. And he just wants the best for you and stuff. And so it was a lot more like, Oh, okay. We can breathe. Yeah. <laughs> but she, you know, she saw a lot of good things in him and, um, I think she just really wants to, to help us as well. And that's, that's so important, um, to be with someone who's going to understand that and not, and not give disempowering things. And the doctor we saw that we thought might give us a second opinion, um, ended up not going well because she, she was flustered because she didn't have any information, which I didn't think to transfer because we hadn't done anything. We just, so part of that is my fault, but she was flustered. Also, I had requested an interpreter, but that kind of fell through the cracks. So we didn't have an interpreter for the appointment. So I was kind of trying to interpret and deal and talk to her and deal with everything at the same time. But her approach, like I had read a lot of good things about this doctor. I was really optimistic and it just, she was like, well, you're using a known donor. Like what, um, I mean, you know, I, I don't know. I worry you have all these vials, but I worry that they're like watering it down or I don't know. She came up with all this stuff and then basically was like, and then the other thing is the legal component. And we said, you know, we already have a legal contract. And she was like, basically, well, the thing about legal contracts though is they're virtually unenforceable. And basically I tell my patients that a known sperm donor is basically, his other name is dad because he could sue you at any time for custody or child support and like going on. And it's like, we already made this decision. Yeah. This is not, what? Yeah. what? Why are you trying to discourage us from, hmm. why are you raising red flags about our known donor? It just was very disempowering and I left there feeling like worse. And then I called another clinic to try and see about setting up a second opinion with them and they, in the same day, and they basically were like, well, um, you can provide your own interpreter. Like we don't do that. And I was just so like done mm. with trying to navigate. I mean, and I'm not even deaf. Like I take that on because I, because Katie has to deal with it yeah. 90% of the time when I'm like, I mean, this is like, I, cause I've been primarily going through the fertility treatments, but that's another issue is that like the deaf community has too, is providers not being knowledgeable about using interpreting services or, you know, and there's just, that adds a burden. It, I mean, it, it did, it added an emotional burden of like, are they going to give me a hard time? Like, do I even want to try and call this doctor? Are they going to give me a hard time about wanting an interpreter? And it's easier just not to. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, so there can be a lot of disempowerment from medical professionals out there. And I think that it's really important just to keep trying to find those that are, that are in your corner and on your side, on your team. Yeah, I love that. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and last question, if people want to reach out to you, where can they find you? 
Sure. Um, I have my uh, public Instagram account, which is at not your average IVF story um, on Instagram. And yeah, that's a way to, to reach out to follow my story. Yeah, I think that's perfect. That's how we met. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> it's sure. so fun. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Erin, and telling your story. And yeah, of just of you and Kate all the time. Yeah, so. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This has been great. We want to thank Erin and Kate so much for allowing us to hear their story today. Even though we couldn't have Kate on, it's amazing that Erin was able to come on and share their experience with us. I am still learning so much about IUI and IVF, and there was this whole other part of it that I didn't realize until today. So thank you so much, Erin, for sharing your experience with us. It was an absolute honor. And for anyone else out there that might want to reach out to Erin and Kate, you can find them on Instagram at not underscore your underscore average underscore IVF story and they're more than happy to talk and so open and such an amazing couple and if you are ever interested in coming on to the Onus podcast yourself remember to email us at hello at the and if you are a provider that would like to come on to the podcast all you have to do is sign up at our directory and we'd love to have you on all right I will see you all next week bye